This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello, and welcome to another Rand Issues in Focus. I am Eyal Katagiri, Director of Community Relations, and it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker. Jeffrey Martini is a Middle East analyst at RAND, currently focusing on political reform in the Arab world, particularly North Africa. He served as a Peace Corps volunteer for three years in Morocco and spent a year in Cairo as a Center for Arabic Study Abroad fellow. He is fluent in modern standard Arabic and in the colloquial versions spoken in Morocco and Egypt. He received degrees in political science and economics from Middlebury College and a master's degree in Arab studies from the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Jeff has authored articles in foreign policy journals as well as RAND reports that address civil-military relations in Egypt Generational Divides Within the Muslim Brotherhood, Trends in the Middle East Security Environment, and Prospects for Democratization in the Arab World. And now, let's join Jeff Martini. Well, first, thanks for that kind introduction. And... um, It's just great to see so many people out here today. I mean, I know Arab Spring and all things Arab Spring are much in the news, and I know Los Angeles is a community that cares a lot about foreign policy, and particularly in the Middle East, but still, this is really an overwhelming turnout, so we're happy to have you, and uh, hopefully I can be provocative for the next 20 or 25 minutes. Um, So what we're here to talk about is the Arab Spring. Writ large, I'm going to talk about uh, developments in Egypt and Tunisia and Libya and Syria. And so I can't go too deep because I'm trying to uh, hit on all the Arab Spring countries. But I'm also going to do that. I'm going to frame it within the context of uh, U.S. strategic interests in the region and the strategies that we've employed to try to advance those interests. Um, and as was said at the outset, I'm going to be blunt. So if anyone's uh, kind of expecting rose-colored glasses or eyewash, you're not going to get it. So, so some, some people uh, might not like what I have to say. Okay. So I think when Americans tend to think about U.S. strategic interests in the Middle East, they collapse it in general to energy security. And energy security is definitely at or near the top of U.S. strategic interests in the Middle East. But it's not that simple. There's other interests, too. Part of it is the stability and security of our allies. And there, certainly, Israel would figure prominently. Also, like it or not, we're the de facto security guarantor for the Arab Gulf states, the Gulf Cooperation Council states. And there's more than that, too. We want military access because we want to be able to respond to contingencies in the region or contingencies farther afield in which we want to flow forces through or around the Middle East. So take Egypt, for instance. One of the uh, very important aspects of Egypt is the fact that it links the Eastern Mediterranean to the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf. So if there's a contingency in the Persian Gulf, we can flow forces there. That's part of it. And then, of course, post 9-11, we've had a lot of counterterrorism concerns. Those are both related to protecting the homeland and also protecting friends and partners and allies in the region. So what are the strategies the U.S. has used to try to advance those interests? They're varied. Um, If we go back in history and we think, for example, in the immediate post-World War II period, one of our strategies was to try to set up a a group of buffer states to stem Soviet influence. Uh, uh, It it wasn't that successful, I would say, um, in the sense that uh, Soviet influence really just leapfrogged it. Um, But then later, we we hit on different strategies. For example, under the Nixon administration, we tried Twin Pillars, it was called. Twin Pillars was relying on uh, our then-ally Iran and Saudi Arabia as the logical regional hegemons to provide stability and provide the free flow of energy in the region. Of course, we know what happened to Iran in 78, 79, 
and that strategy proved unsustainable. I can't go through them all, but there's the Carter Doctrine, there's offshore balancing, there's dual containment, then there was direct military intervention, like in the 90-91 Gulf War, and then again in the 2003 war in Iraq. So we have these varied interests, we have these different strategies we've employed to try to advance those interests with varying degrees of success. And so now what I want, want you to do is kind of put yourself in the shoes of the Obama administration in late 2010, right on the eve of the Arab Spring. Mohammed al-Bouazizi, the a Tunisian fruit vendor, hasn't self-immolated yet. How are we thinking about the Middle East? We are wary. This is where I'm gonna start getting blunt. We are drawing down from Iraq. We are trying to wind down the war in Afghanistan, and we are wary. We're looking at the Middle East sort of like a friend who's like, ah, I hope they don't call. I don't really want to return their calls. <laughs> We're tired of this. You start hearing, you know, outgoing Secretary of Gates, what did he say? I won't get the exact quote yet, but it's right, but it was something to the effect of, if there's a future Secretary of Defense who advises an administration to conduct a land war in Asia or the Middle East, they should have their head checked. I'm sure about the end of that quote, they should have their head checked. Um, and that's when you start hearing talk about the Asia pivot. We don't, it's a euphemism now. In Washington, we're not allowed to use that term. We call it rebalancing or something. Anyway, what it really means is focusing on an ascendant power, China, and reassuring our allies there, and frankly, playing with the winners of the international system, people whose economies are growing and, and, and not mucking around in the Middle East. So that's where we were. And then Mohammed al-Bouazizi self-immolated, and Ben Ali fell in Tunisia, and Mubarak fell in Egypt, and there was a conflict in Libya that led to the ouster and the killing of Gaddafi. Saleh was uh, uh, forced to resign in Yemen. Uh, you had uh, an uprising in Bahrain that was put down. You had Jordan and Morocco in kind of a slow boil. And now that you have this terrible civil conflict in Syria. So that's where we are today. And that's kind of a segue for me to talk about some of the internal issues in the Middle East, which is what gets me excited as a researcher. That's what I want to focus on. But we need to keep in mind that U.S. policymakers think about it from these strategic interests and strategies that I started out with. And that's why I forced you to listen to that framing to start. So what are some initial reflections of mine on the, on the Arab Spring? And let me reiterate the comment that these are my reflections. There's plenty of RAND researchers who I'm sure would disagree with me. My first one would be, there's still great salience, still great resonance to identity politics in the region, and it manifests itself in different ways. So for example, if we look at Syria, it manifests itself in terms of sectarian and ethnic conflict. You have a minority, a strategic minority there, the Alawites that have dominated the state, and they're trying to put down a Sunni Arab rebellion for the most part. I think the other uh, minorities there, the Druze, the Christians, and so forth, are, are worried themselves. You know, there in, in Syria, the identity politics manifests itself that way in sectarian conflict. Elsewhere, it's actually regional or tribal. And so my two examples there would be Yemen and Libya. So you go to Libya. I was just there a few months ago. And, you know, people talk about belonging to Barqa, which is what uh, Libyans call the eastern part of the country. You look at the uh, prominent political figures, Mahmoud Jibril, who leads the largest political party in, in Libya. He's from the Warfala tribe, which was the tribe that supported Gaddafi, by the way. Um, and there's, you know, there's, it's, it's tribal politics and regional politics, and I think you could make those same observations about Yemen. There's another sort of dynamic of the identity politics, and that's a very strong Islamist, non-Islamist divide, or in some places, Islamist, overtly secular divide. And there, my examples would be Egypt and Tunisia. And I think the political polarization is particularly severe in Egypt, where you have, um, let's take the Salafists, for example. You have Salafists that would deny kind of the legitimacy of secular political actors to participate in the system. And then, by the way, you have secularists who are just as doctrinal, who look at people who are Islamists as some backward or anti-modern, and it leads to this severe political polarization. So that's, that's one reflection is identity politics still matters. I mean, we saw that in Iraq, but we're seeing it again. And I think in some ways the Arab Spring has sharpened identity politics in the region. 
The second point I want to make is the difficulty that revolutionary forces have had in transitioning from mobilizing dissent and opposition to becoming political actors. And here, the examples I want to use are Egypt and Libya. Let's take Egypt. If we think about the youth groups, and they really were youth groups that were the initial catalysts for change, April 6, we are all Khalid Saeed, these two very important groups. I think they're going through an identity crisis. They don't know if they're civil society groups, if they're political parties. They're not really represented in the new order. Now let's take Libya, for instance. A lot of people don't follow Libya, so these names might not be familiar to you. But if you do follow Libya, the head of state is Mohamed Magariev. The prime minister is Ali Zaydan. The first choice for prime minister was Mustafa Abu Shugur. You might know them as Californians because they lived in California. They were, they're, they're part of an exile community that's a generation removed. They're prominent academics in the United States. That's a generation removed from the people that fought the revolution. I love those people. I have nothing against them, but they were not the drivers of change. Just as in Egypt, the people that inherited the state, if you will, were not the drivers of change. The initial caretaker government in Egypt was the military. That was the backbone of the old regime. And then, subsequently, the ruling party is the Muslim Brotherhood. They were Johnny-come-latelys, the revolution. They didn't throw in on January 25th when it started off. They only threw in when it gained momentum on January 28th, although they would say the revolution is a product of, of, of their long opposition uh, stemming 80 years. So those are two kind of initial observations. I want to move on to a third, and that has to do with Islamist integration into the political system. And here, the, the point I want to make is, prior to the Arab Spring or the Arab Winter, the Arab uprisings, whatever you want to call this phenomenon, we were being sold something by the old regimes. And what we were being sold by the old regimes is it's us or them, meaning the Islamists, it's us or chaos, or as Mubarak famously said, it's me or the abyss. And this was a trope. This was, you know, the scarecrow, the boogeyman of the Islamists. And I think what the first two years of the Arab Spring shows is it was exactly that. It was a scarecrow. It was a boogeyman. Sometimes I'm accused of being apologist for the Muslim Brotherhood. Ask the Muslim Brotherhood. They don't consider me apologist for them. I've, I've written some critical things on them, although I do give them credit where they've reformed. I like to think I'm an objective observer of the Brotherhood. So I don't come up here as an apologist for them. But you cannot tell me that the worst-case scenarios that the old regimes were peddling have come to pass. Look at Egypt. Last time I looked, Camp David hasn't been abrogated. Last time I looked, the 1979 peace agreement is still in effect. Uh, last time I looked, Mohammed Morsi said publicly in Arabic, you know, we've had security cooperation with Israel. We're going to continue to have security cooperation. He might even be more pragmatic on foreign policy than Mubarak. Look at Gaza, where he helped negotiate the ceasefire. People were worried about the relationship between Egypt and Iran. He went to Tehran not to make nice, but to go there and criticize the regime for supporting the Syrians. So I think we really were fed this trope, this, this story about Islamists, which doesn't ring true. And that's, that's not to give them a pass. I'm frequently critical of the Muslim Brotherhood on issues like judicial independence, freedom of the press. I think they could be doing better than they're doing, but again, these worst-case scenarios we were fed have not come to pass. Having made those kind of comments about some of the dynamics within the region, I want to bring it full circle. And I'm just going to conclude with two points. And to bring it full circle, I'm going to talk a bit more about U.S. interests and U.S. strategy. I think one thing the Arab Spring has, one positive, potential positive for the United States, an opportunity is that finally the United States has to engage with what you might call simply the real Egypt, the real Tunisia, the real Libya. By that I mean we've had 50 or 60 years in which we've engaged with a very narrow elite, which is totally out of pace with the public. Um, so you think about in Egypt, for instance, in the Mubarak regime, on politics, exclusion of Islamists. On economics, privatization, selling off state-owned enterprise deregulation. Um, on foreign policy, you could argue basically sold Egypt's foreign policy to the highest bidder. That might have been an easy partner to work with, but it's really out of step with the Egyptian people. 
The other government, the new government, not necessarily representative. I wouldn't say it, it has all the popular legitimacy it could, but it's a step closer. I think we're finally going to engage with the real Egypt. And that real Egypt, frankly, from a US perspective, might be a more difficult partner at times. It might have more warts, but it's also more sustainable because it reflects some, something more of the popular current in Egypt. And you could say the same holds true for Libya. I mean, I'm sorry, but the regime was bizarro. And you have, you, I mean, you, you can't say there's any historical continuity between the Green Book and the Libyan people. It's just crazy. And, uh, you know, finally you're able to engage with a regime which more reflects the population, although there I noted, I mean, it really is dominated by expatriates with, a, with you know, probably deeper roots in Santa Monica and L.A. than, than in Libya. Um, so I want to close with a final point here, and it's what I see as the central challenge posed by the Arab Spring. And that is, you know, the Arab Spring really brings into stark contrast where U.S. Principles and values don't align with our strategic interests. It was pretty easy on in the early days of the Arab Spring. So if you look at the sequencing, you know, Tunisia was the first regime to fall. Ben Ali was the first to go down. I love Tunisia. I've spent some time there. I had Tunisian professors. God bless them. But Tunisia is peripheral to U.S. strategic interests, frankly. It's not a hard choice to throw in with the revolutionaries there. It doesn't, it doesn't matter all that much in the grand scheme of things. Libya was also not that hard because we couldn't imagine something worse than Gaddafi. Some people would say we got it in the form of instability, but you know, what also, again, it wasn't that hard to throw in. It wasn't that hard to be on the right side of history. It was harder in Egypt because we had a friend. We had an authoritarian bargain we kind of liked. But in the end, we were able to get over it. I think there was realists who saw it's still in Egypt's strategic interest to maintain a cold peace with Israel, and we were able to live with it. But there's other places where our principles don't align with our strategic interests, and you can argue we've sided with narrow strategic interests. And there Bahrain comes to mind. You've got, like Syria, like Iraq before, you have a minority-led regime repressing the majority. And by the way, the majority's demands aren't that unreasonable. They're for things like a constitutional monarchy. But we also happen to have the Fifth Fleet there. That's where NAV sent the Naval Central Command forward is, it's a much harder decision. We see Bahrain as a frontline state in what is now the central conflict in the Middle East. The central conflict in the Middle East is no longer Israel-Palestine. It's Iran, the West, Iran, the Arab Gulf, Iran, Israel. And Bahrain is the place where we seek to project power from. And so it's really hard to give up on a regime like that, no matter how authoritarian it is. And I think that's the way the Arab Spring is going to continue to challenge us going forward. I see the Arab Spring is continuing to have legs. I don't think it's done. And I don't think the U.S. is, is going to uh, be able to avoid those tough choices where principles don't necessarily align with strategic interests. And with that, I'll take your tough questions. And I've tried to be provocative. So even though I'm wearing this wimpy lavender shirt, I can take it. So, yeah. yeah. We have a question to your left. Thank you. That was very informative and quite frank. Um, and this is t tangentially related to what you spoke about, especially towards the end of your talk. When will the Arab Spring hit Saudi Arabia, according to your research? I haven't done specific research on Saudi Arabia, so I'll talk off the cuff here a bit. And Saudi Arabia has some things going for it. Um, certainly the oil wealth is something that's going for it in terms of, you know, for people who are familiar with political science and comparative political science in the region, there's the rentier state concept where people sort of, uh, you know, uh, use largesse and patronage to buy off people's political rights. I think some of that goes on in Saudi Arabia. Um, but also, because they really are a frontline state in this new conflict with Iran, it also is a way to rally their people around a foreign enemy, if you will. So, you know, the old regime in Egypt was able to use Israel in that same way. Iran is able to use, or Saudi Arabia is able to use Iran and the Shia crescent in general as something to rally their people to the flag. So, you know, there's other things, though, that would, I'm a bit of two minds about it. Um, certainly, they've got their youth bulge problem. There's a lot of projections that say they're going to exhaust their energy supply because they're consuming it so quickly. 
Um, but I do think they have some advantages, those advantages being the oil wealth for the here and now and, uh, and the fact that they can rally people to the flag. I have a question to the speakers, right? Hi. Um, I'll try to be polite as well. Um, my question first is you started off with saying the self-immolation of the Tunisian vendor. I would think it would be Iran in the elections was before that and when uh, it was blatantly stolen. And that I won't even comment. I'll just leave it on that. Uh, what I really was curious, though, as you were saying about the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, the Coptic Christian, uh, <laughs> their community is being decimated. And to say that it's okay and, it, you know, it's going to have legs, we're sitting here in Santa Monica. They're there having daughters kidnapped. It, it, it's a mess. And I look to Libya, and I'm sorry, I just don't see clarity from this administration. I see Benghazi. I see Hicks saying he was all alone. I mean, there was just, it just seems from an anonymous American's point of view, there's a lot of confusion and there's no direct, like, outlook. You know, Iran was left hanging at the beginning, and it's just, to me, I've just seen confusion since then. So, thank you. Yeah, no, you know, I left Iran out of this because I wanted to focus on the Arab world, but I understand, uh, you know, around the disputed 2009 election and what went on. I mean, I understand that they're in some ways part of this, but I, I really wanted to keep the focus on Arab countries. In terms of um, a somewhat confusing or you know, difficult to discern kind of a strategy behind the US response, I'm with you. On the other hand, I'm empathetic. Um, because you know, you, you, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, when she was asked about this, you know, I made the point of, some of these transitions uh, really put in stark contrast U.S. principles and values and strategic interests. And so Hillary Clinton had to explain that away. And the way that she tried to explain that away is to say we're going to deal with these countries but on a case-by-case -case basis. And what she meant is we'll be on the right side of history when it's easy, and we may not be on the right side of history when it's in U.S. strategic interest not to be. And that's, you know, there's no country that doesn't pursue its strategic interests. And in, in some ways, you could say you don't need to apologize for that. On the other hand, the United States holds itself up to this and says, you know, we have sort of this exceptional role and think of ourselves in that way. And so it's difficult. I, you know, I'm not sure what I would have done differently. It's, these are, it's, it's an extremely tumultuous region. And not many people saw this coming. You don't know how many people are writing dissertations on the sustainability and the durability of Arab regimes when this all went down. Yeah. We have a question in the back. Thanks. I have a question to me, um, or in my opinion, I'm wondering why the elephant in the room to me is Syria. And so I'm sort of curious why you left that out as part of your message. Right. Um, only because it was a lot of ground to cover, not because I don't think it's important. Um, I've written on this issue. My focus has been on, I see Syria morphing into an arena of strategic competition. And by that, I mean, there's some bitter irony here. Okay, so how did Syria used to prosecute its foreign policy? It wanted to take on Israel, but it didn't want to do it on its own turf. So it did it through Lebanon it made Lebanon an arena of strategic competition. I feel for the Syrian, Syrian people, so there's no, I'm not happy about this, but Syria has become the arena of strategic competition. It's where regional powers are coming to play. So of course, there's an internal uprising, and that's the driver here, but who's intervening? The Quds force in Iran is intervening. Hezbollah's in, intervening. And although we don't pay attention to it because they're on our side, if you will, the Saudis and the Qataris and Turkey and Jordan and everyone else is intervening for the, for the opposition. So Turkey itself has turned into a, a larger regional issue. Um, and I think that's a, a very difficult one to resolve. Yeah. I have a question in the back. Uh, I thank you very much. Excellent uh, presentation. If you were president for one day and that day were tomorrow, what would you do relative to the Middle East? Oof. Um, uh, 
see, I'm a sucker for all things Arab, so I'd get pulled into this. But I, I was actually, I thought the administration was smart pre-Arab uh, Spring when they tried to inoculate themselves. As much as I love the Arab people, and I do, we'd been pulled into conflicts. We were draining resources. I didn't think we were making decisions that advanced U.S. strategic interests, and I was for the shift away. I thought it was very savvy to do the, um, uh, the Asia pivot and to focus on what is our only near peer, frankly, in terms of hard power metrics, China, and to focus on reassuring some important allies there and stop mucking, mucking around in conflicts, many of which are based on primordial identities that we're far removed from. But now that the Arab Spring has come, I think there's some historic opportunities. I mean, I see the Arab Spring in some ways as continuing a process of decolonization. So many of the regimes that are falling are, are actually legacies of colonial intervention, divide and rule strategies. And we're seeing a new region, and, I, and there is some hope. Um, a colleague and I did a study in which we looked at comparative trends in democratization. So if you look at what Sam Huntington called the third wave, where you had a democracy spreading to other regions, how did that take place? And it was ugly, too. We think of Spain and Portugal and Turkey as foregone conclusions, but they worked. And democracy has taken root, and in Latin America and in other areas, in states we would have never thought, who didn't, didn't seem very fertile territory for democracy, like Mongolia. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I'm not bereft of optimism when it comes to the Middle East. I think we've got a tough road ahead of us. Um, but I think we shouldn't prejudge that uh, uh, these historic developments might be for the benefit in creating regimes that finally have some popular legitimacy and don't operate purely on the basis of coercion. We have a question to your left. What is the current state of affairs in Morocco, and how does Morocco fit into U.S. strategic interests? Um, you know, they, they did their constitutional reform. I, I put Morocco in the same camp as Jordan, in which I think they were smart. Well, one, the monarchies in those countries do have some legitimacy. So Mohammed VI, I mean, he's a, he's a beloved king. And, and Abdullah II, maybe not to the same degree, but they do have their supporters. And they both have some religious legitimacy, at least they claim, and being from the families of the Prophet Muhammad. So, you know, I think they tried to preempt the change by doing some reform. I don't want to say it was entirely superficial. A lot of it strikes me as superficial. Um, uh, but I think in the near term, they strike me as in the near term out of the woods. Yeah, that they, they did a good job managing it. We have a question in the back. Thank you. And thank you for your... Uh very informative presentation. Uh, question is a bit self-serving because I'm a doctoral student at the Annenberg School studying media transformation, not just in the Middle East, but everywhere. So I'd, I'm hoping you might talk a bit to the role of the media. Of, of course, here in California, we often point to Twitter and social media as uh, attributable or for, for uh, part of the Arab Spring, but also the kind of pan-Arab cable television channels, Al Jazeera, and generally the deregulation and privatization of media that might have given more cosmopolitanism. You mentioned sort of the real Egypt or the real Tunisia, and whether that kind of private media ownership might compel a kind of transparency that allows for this. I think the story of the new media in the Middle East is really important. And I think the case studies that you hit on are where it's most important. In particular, I'd focus on Egypt here, where uh, you know, April 6th really was a movement that was largely organized online. Uh, the initial call to demonstrations was put out online. A revolution, I, I frequently say this, a revolution in Egypt may have happened, but it sure as heck wouldn't have happened on January 25th if it wasn't for uh, social media mobilization. And I also think that the uh, pan-Arab uh, cable television networks uh, that, that you mentioned they do have a lot of influence. In fact, I think they've, in some ways, forged a new ideology. Ideology. They fuse a little bit of Islamism with a little bit of Arab nationalism. And it's very sort of intoxicating. It's populist, um, and it rallies people. But I think, 
you know, you have to look across cases because I've also done work on social media in Syria, and I don't think it's particularly consequential. And the reason why I say that is you want to join the uprising in Syria. Well, early on, it was pretty clear how you did that. You showed up to a mosque on Friday. It wasn't that tough. You didn't need a Facebook account. And, uh, and, and also, the internet penetration rates vary so widely. It's still low in Egypt as compared to the general populace, but there's a lot of opinion leaders, if you will, that carry weight that are on it. But in Syria, with uh, state-controlled uh, telecommunications networks and actually the suppression of the blocking of Facebook, um, you look at those penetration rates and they were very low. And then the regime, of course, tried to use social media to their advantage. So uh, the Assad regime, during the early days of the, of the uprising there, be actually before it turned violent, they lifted the ban on Facebook. And they lifted the ban on Facebook because they wanted to, this was intelligence mission, they wanted to profile the activists and, and knock on their doors. So, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword. I mean, the regimes earlier, um, we got a question about Iran. Certainly, the Iranian regime has used social media as, you know, if there's any people of Iranian descent in this room, including, you know, in the West to track people. We have a question to your left. You mentioned identity politics and a relatively recent post-colonialist area. How long do you think the border of the Middle East will sustain themselves? You know, Iraq is about to split. Maybe Syria will split. Jordan have also some pressures. So how long borders will stay in a very long-term point of view, not short-term view? Right. No, that's a really interesting question. Again, I see it kind of a case-by-case -case basis. So you have states with historic national identities. And I should have mentioned this with regard to the Morocco question. Morocco has a nation-state identity that Jordan, for example, does not. Egypt also has a nation-state identity. Those are the two states in the Middle East who are frequently cited as, you know, this isn't a colonial construct, but in fact the nation-state uh, preceded uh, colonial interventions. But you're right, there are some independence movements in the region. For example, um, you know, there's, uh, there's Kurds who want federalism. There's Kurds that push for, for independence. Um, there are certainly states that are fracturing. Uh, on the other hand, you take a state like Libya. There was a, we thought there might be a federalist movement, and that was defeated in the July 7th election. So there, people didn't necessarily say, I wanted to be under the thumb of Tripoli, but they did say, I'm a Libyan. Um, so I see countervailing trends, but I think probably where the states, the actual borders are most under siege is a place like Iraq where you have the ethnic minority, com the Kurds, comprising such a big... Uh, and then you could argue that a lot of the boundaries in the Gulf are very fabricated. Uh, and certainly Sa Saudi Arabia treats it that way and that you know, they consider Bahrain their backyard. Yeah. We have a question in the middle. Hi, can you speak a little bit about the uh, effects of Western energy independence on uh, U.S. strategic interests in, in the Middle East? Um, clearly, we'll be removing some economic support from the governments that seem to be less friendly towards Western um, nations, but also from our friends and allies over there. So can you talk a little bit about how you see um, foreign policy uh, evolving as we become less uh, dependent on, on Middle East energy? Yeah, I do think it's a good, of course, I think it's a good trend line. I think it takes us out of the straitjacket of, of, of kind of being tied to these regimes. Um, I mean, I think one of the problems there, though, is, okay, the U.S. has made a lot of headway in weaning itself off Middle East oil. On the other hand, a lot of our allies have not. So when we talk about energy security, like when I talked about it at the beginning of the, of the, of the uh, presentation, it's not just the energy security of the United States, it's the energy security of a state like Japan, which is so much more reliant on Middle East oil than we are. And we are concerned about that. So um, I think we'll still sort of have that, we'll still in a, in a way be tied to that. And then, as I mentioned with regard to the kind of diverse set of strategic interests we're pursuing there, the Middle East is still a, a place you frequently have to go through to get someplace else. So. Now that, I know that's fairly obvious, it is the Middle East. Um, that, you know, um, I mean, you look at Egypt, again, the, the salience of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for the U.S. administration is, 
despite John Kerry's visit, it's not there. We're thinking about Iran. But we think about Egypt not because so much for Egypt's sake, frankly, but because we want to transit Egypt to get to the Persian Gulf, to get farther afield. We needed overflight from Egypt to prosecute the campaign in Afghanistan. So, um, you know, I think just because it's still going to have geostrategic importance, even if oil is diminished, although I support uh, the, uh, us weaning ourselves off Middle East oil and feels, feel like it does improve our leverage and position. Yeah. We have a question in the front. Hello, I'm Egyptian, and of course the future of Egypt matters so much for me. So can you please kindly uh, speak more about the near future? What will happen? Do you think the Muslim Brotherhood will just complete, or it's just a matter of time, and then who will take over? Thank right. you. So I have what I like to think is an interesting report I just wrote on uh, voting patterns in post-Mubarak Egypt. And basically, I look at the four elections, or the two elections and two referenda that have taken place in Egypt. And I'm looking at, okay, we've got two years of electoral data. Is the star of Islamists waxing or waning? Are they doing better or worse? And I think you have, and you would look, I'm sure you follow the polling in Ahram and the others. I think you'd have to say that the political star of Islamists is waning. So even if you um, compare, for example, the performance of the Freedom and Justice Party in Egypt in the 2011-2012 parliamentary elections. Depending on how you count it, they won 43 or 48% of the vote. I mean, it's hard to say that, I mean, they cleaned up and combined with the Salafists, nearly three quarters of the vote. Then you look at Mohamed Morsi. He barely beat Ahmed Shafiq, as you know, and there can be no more, there can be no candidate with more Mubarak era baggage than Ahmed Shafiq. I mean, the guy served under Mubarak, and yet he almost won the election. And I don't know if you saw the recent Pew polling that was done, you know, a very uh, respectable research organization, survey research organization, and they find as many Egyptians, about as many Egyptians, think they're worse off after the revolution, you know, better off under Mubarak than they are today. So in this report, I argue that if the non-Islamists, which as you know in Egypt, they're called the National Salvation Front, I argue if they participate in the elections, I think they'll make significant gains. And I think this is just, I have a colleague at Rand, and he calls it the poison chalice. I mean, I think the Brotherhood in Egypt in some ways inherited the poison chalice. It's a mess. You know better than I do. Security's a mess. You've got sectarian issues that were mentioned with cops that feel under the Coptic community that feels under siege. They desperately need this life preserver of a loan from the IMF. And the Brotherhood's the ruling party. And uh, frankly, the non-Islamists have been rooting for them to lose and have stepped back and isolated them. And I think in the end, the Brotherhood will probably in the near term pay a price at the ballot box. And by the way, if, for political scientists in the room, they can back me up on this. I mean, if you look comparatively at breakthrough elections for Islamists, that is when Islamists are excluded from the political process and then participate, they tend to do very well in the first election. And then their support tends to diminish over time. And I think we'll see that trend line in Egypt. I don't predict that, you know, Sabahi and, and Baradai and, and Amr Musa and the Waft party are going to be in power anytime soon, but I think you're going to see a diminished support for the Brotherhood. We have a question in the back. I wanted to go back a little bit to the social media issue and wondered if you had any thoughts about how it's going to be used in the future from more of a governmental level. I know there have been some really interesting things happening, particularly, I think, of Operation Pillar of Defense, where there was sort of Twitter as a secondary battlefield between the IDF and Hamas, and um, the ways that other heads of state have been using social media to try to generate more um, goodwill from their people, and wondered if you could speak to that. No, I, I think you do see this trend line where, um, okay, so it's going to sound like I'm picking on Egypt. The Egyptian regime had the stupidest strategy for the, for the internet in the uh, uh, January 25th revolution, which was to try to cut it off. And it didn't work, and it backfired. And I think a lot of regimes looked at that and learned from the mistakes. And now they're trying to control social media, for instance, to do the um, intelligence reconnaissance I talked about earlier, or to kind of control the discourse. Or in, you know, you have 
what is the uh, Syrian hacker group called? You've got the, you know, the, the Syrian hackers that go on um, uh, boards and post praises for the Assad regime. So I definitely think this is an emerging area of competition that we're going to see, uh, keep seeing developed. And I do think that the regimes are getting more adept at it. And I think of not only in the Middle East, but outside of the Middle East. I think of Russia and China. And I also think of some of the authoritarian regimes left in the Middle East who are, who are learning by doing. One of the studies I want to do is, you know, Assad, did he learn from the way that the Iranian regime handled social media during the 2009 uprising? Um, were they watching how China's managed this? I do think the same way that democratization and, and those movements spread, there's also learning, you know, that, that that same sort of knowledge transfer takes place among the authoritarians of the world. We have a question right in the front. I'm curious, it seems to be there was a sense of unanimity between the Arab states with regards to the ouster of um, Gaddafi that seems to be lacking with regards to the situation in Syria, and if you can explain why that might be. Right. Um, I mean, I think uh, the way that I would bin or char characterize the Arab states and their position on Syria, I think most of the Sunni Arab states really are lining up against the Assad regime and are waiting for him to get it his comeuppance, if you will. And that also includes non-Arab uh, Sunni states in the region like Turkey, who's playing a key role here. Um, there are states, however, within that category that don't really want to speak up because they're vulnerable. And Jordan's your primary example here. They're accepting refugees. They're really not that strong of a state. They feel vulnerable to spillover violence. And so they're quietly supporting the opposition, but not in the way that Turkey is, for example, overtly fun funneling arms to the opposition, or Saudi Arabia or Qatar, for instance, both of which are overtly supporting the opposition. Um, you know, the states in the region that are most conflicted happen to be, I mean, it kind of plays out on sectarian lines. Iraq, I think, is very conflicted about uh, the fall of the Assad regime. And some people have argued that, in fact, Israel is conflicted about the fall of the Assad regime, that, you know, here was a weak dictator that could be controlled. And, uh, you know, you'd have a reason to worry about kind of a resistance-oriented Sunni Arab state on their border that included potential safe havens for al-Qaeda in the form of Shibhat al-Nusra. So. Question in the front. Um, I'm going to... Uh use the dreaded T word, uh, terrorism. And we have not talked about that yet tonight. Uh, its origins are in the Middle East, and it's now global. And we've seen it in London, we've seen it in Boston, we've seen it in Benghazi and elsewhere. Uh, what is your prognosis for the future of being able to manage that problem? Well, be because I was flying from Washington today, I didn't get to see Obama's speech on drones. Uh, you guys can tell me what happened. He's going to keep using them. That's the, that's the short of it. Um, but did he not say something about the, you know, there was uh, initial uh, leaking of the speech in which people talked about him saying, okay, the global war on terrorism goes on, but it might not be, you know, it might be over in our lifetimes, 10 or 20 years. I tend to think that that's a possibility. I think we've done great damage to al-Qaeda, um, I don't think we did great damage to al-Qaeda in Iraq. I personally think that was a blunder, but I think some of the efforts we've done elsewhere have done a lot. Uh, and I started, I started off as a Peace Corps volunteer, so I don't want to come out as an advocate for drones. But that said, I think the drones have been effective in, in decapitating some of the leadership. Um, people change. <laughs> um, anyway, so I guess I'm... If Obama did say that today, maybe I'm putting words in his mouth. I'm hopeful in those same ways that this is a struggle that, um, that you know, maybe 10, 20 years, but uh, hopefully we'll outlive it. We have a question to your left. Hi, my question is about uh, Lebanon. And given its own, in recent years, uh, the, uh, the civil war, the engagement with Syria, the Palestinians, Israelis being drawn into, into it, how has it managed through this process not to be part of this this whole movement, and what is what would you say its strategic importance to the United States is? Um, you know, 
I think one of the reasons why Lebanon has been less susceptible to the uh, Arab Spring or the uprisings we've seen elsewhere is their experience with civil war. And I put Algeria in the same camp. So those are two states that you would think would be vulnerable to the Arab Spring, but you've got a population's who have lived through brutal civil war. In Algeria, you've got people that basically, I think of the decolonization against the French as in some ways a first civil war there. And then you had the civil war in the 90s. Their first civil war, if you will, the decolonization process in Algeria killed a million, you know, more than 100,000 in, in the civil conflict there in the 90s. And then you look at Lebanon, this teeny tiny state, in which so much of its population was lost during the civil war there, what, from 75 to, nine, to the, the early 90s, and, uh, or has emigrated, and that's why there's such a big diaspora population. So I think for states that have gone through that experience, uh, there's more hesitancy to go down that road, particularly when, you, when you've seen what's gone on in Iraq and elsewhere. Now, what would undermine uh, th that analysis is look at Yemen. They've gone through two civil wars in their modern period, and yet they went down this road. But I think in general, the states that have had that experience have been more cautious. Um, and I think, you know, the fact that the thumb of Hezbollah, if you will, has played a role there too. Yeah. Question to your right. I, I wanted to uh, ask you to elaborate a bit more on your use of the term identity politics. Uh, I was listening to an interview earlier today in which uh, the conflict was uh, in the Middle East the, and the Arab Spring was uh, essentially described as a cultural war. And the notion was expressed that what the West wanted to do was to take our children away from us, particularly our sons away from us. And what struck me is that in a society where you have an extended family and kind of tribal organization as the basic social unit in that kind of an economy, taking sons away, splitting the extended family, is simply non-functional for survival in that kind of economy. That would be a real threat. And when I look around at our society, I think about my three children and seven grandchildren, None of them are listed living in an extended family in which I'm the family head. They're all dispersed everywhere. So in fact, Western culture does imply a very different pattern of social organization perceived as a threat by a society in which the extended family is basic. Underlying all of this is the need for economic development. And when I look at the summary here, I find very little attention to the need for economic development and reform as a basis for any kind of political resolution. Those are really good points. Um, you know, I do agree with you that, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, as in anywhere, people tend to fight for their families. They fight for people they're close to. But I do, I do want to push back a little and say I think that identity politics matters in the sense that look at peop how people self-identify and how people are mobilized. People are being mobilized as, you know, you're Sunni. They're Alawite. They're Alawi. They're Shia. Um, people are mobilized of, uh, you're Arab, you're Kurd. People are being mobilized in these tribal ways that you said, you're Warfala, you supported the Qadhafi regime. You're from a different tribe that was repressed by the Qadhafi regime. You're from the east of Libya. You're from Sebha in the south. You're a Houthi in the north of Yemen, you're from Sana. And so I do think these identity politics have resonance, but I take your point that, you know, at the end of the day, people do tend to fight for who they're closest to, and that, ex that includes extended families. Um, on the issue of economic reform, I think it's a real driver. All you have to do is look at the slogans that people were chanting in the streets during the Arab Spring. It wasn't just People want the downfall of the regime. It was also uh, bread, freedom, and social justice. Well, social justice is actually sort of code for redistributive uh, economic policies, but and they're both economic, bread, of course, and, and social justice. So I, I do think that was a driver behind many of the revolts. 
If you look back in, in the modern history of the Middle East, you'll see that other political uprisings like the bread riots in Morocco and Tunisia and Egypt, they did center around these uh, economic issues. We have time for one last question in the center. Hi, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about civil society and its role and impacts in these countries, and then also um, a bit about the utility of foreign aid investments um, from the U.S. in terms of promoting civil society, and if that's not one of the angles that you suggest, what are the other smart ways of foreign aid investments right now in these countries? I'm a big supporter of the work that the National Democratic Institute, uh, the uh, NED, the National Endowment for Democracy, and those folks are doing building civil society. I think it's really important. And I feel like people like Ahmed Mahar from the April 6th movement and others, they really are hope for Egypt. And I think they need to find their footing and find a voice in the new Egypt. And so I do, uh, I do like to see the civil society support for these groups. I mean, one of the problems is, of course, as you know, it's so toxic to receive money from foreign governments and particularly from the United States, so they get tarred with that U.S. agenda. And, uh, and so these groups, you know, they become, they do need the aid, on the other hand, and in some ways by accepting it, it undermines their position. So it's just very tough to figure out ways to do that. I think the assistance I found recently that I thought was most effective was, okay, having recently been to Libya, I'm not that optimistic. But the January 7th elections were amazing. You had a country under 42 years of, again, bizarro rule, and 60% of the country turned out and voted. They hadn't been asked to vote you know, previously. They turned out and voted. And that was in large part due to, well, it's, in, it's to the credit of the Libyan people, but IFES and the people who are giving electoral assistance played a big role there and helped them formulate an electoral law that was reasonable. I have some critiques of it, but I do think the electoral assistance and assistance targeted towards constitution making are really important. I think one of the travesties of the uh, of the recent uh, developments in Egypt was the constitution writing process there, and the fact that um, you know the non-Islamists withdrew from the constituent assembly. It ended up getting rammed through by the Islamists, and I think more technical assistance from the West might have might have been helpful. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.